for me, the thing about science fiction is its capacity as a medium to talk about really, really difficult shit or things right. like that people are having a hard time wrapping their minds around. Someone does it in sci-fi and suddenly it becomes feasible to think about. Welcome to Intention, a podcast presented by the Power Plant Contemporary Art Gallery, where we speak with artists about their art and practice. Like many art lovers, I'm often drawn to works that pull me into new worlds. Art that causes me to think about other possibilities and how we might live on this planet differently. With our environment under constant threat of destruction, I see art as a way to help us think our way to a more sustainable and balanced world by grappling with our ecological past, present, and future. These are just some of the ideas that multidisciplinary artist Rajni Pereira takes up in her artistic practice. Pereira was born in Sri Lanka and lives and works in Toronto. She explores hybridity, speculative fictions, ancestorship, migrant and marginalized identities, monsters, and dream worlds. These subjects come together to fuel explorations within a multimedia practice that includes drawing, painting, clay, wood, and other media. Prayer seeks to use the beings and objects she creates as restorative forces that counter antiquated and oppressive discourses. Rajni, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Your artistic practice is deeply engaged with world building, mythology, imagining possible realities, conjuring alternative ways of being. Through your paintings, sculptures, and various multimedia works, you've invited the viewer, it seems, to experience an often genderless, prophetic vision of a distant future. But you also respond to our past and our present. When did you realize this was going to be your life's work? So engaging in futurism or like the idea of futurism is actually a little bit recent. Like my his, my brief history as an artist begins where I was looking at my past mostly. I was making work to sell while I was at school. So I consider that to be a part of my career, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. I didn't have the opportunity to wait until school was over. I was going into my past and kind of situating myself really early on. So more of past. And then after school, I was looking into sort of alternate timelines or hyperdimensionality where like time kind of disappears completely. Mm. And then futurism shows up around the time I put out the show Traveler. I mean, I'm a big fan of futurist work as it pertains to kind of science fiction since I was very young. So it was, it was that avenue of futurism that I really, really wanted to explore. Mm -hmm. It's optimistic, it's hopeful, and you use science fiction and futurism as kind of a me more of a medium than like a set of ideas or anything right. to talk about difficult things, to talk about beautiful things, hopeful stuff, shitty stuff, you know, that we don't really know how we're going to deal with. Futurism, science fiction can be that way of investigating time, investigating possibility. Yeah. So investigating futurism in in my own way will be a portion of the work that I do 
we are living in a we're living in a time. <laughs> but this is a time to explore futurism and to explore possibility more than a lot of other times that I can remember in my life. You know? so, so you don't want to be defined by it. I'm, I'm sensing like yeah, this, someone this, called me a futurist, right, right. <laughs> but uh, part of what you're doing, but it's what it's I've not, been, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah it, it's funny we start off by talking about time because yes. like one of my favorite things to do in my practice is look at time like an accordion, so I can pull it yeah. and I can contract it, and right. we can travel very distant quickly, or we can look at these parts in time where we don't know if we're here or there, right. Time is really cool. You know, it's more of a like a pool of water for me than it is kind of like a line. A chronology. You know? yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know how much I respect chronology, yeah. you know, especially when we're talking about like ti- deep time, yeah. like long yeah. amounts of time, big yeah. swaths of it. In your highly regarded traveler series, you center the diasporic traveler as a way to think about survival in an ecologically devastated present and a dystopian future. And you also ponder historical knowledge and traditions that uh, may very well be urgently needed both today and tomorrow. And for me, it, as you were saying, it really amounts to this wonderful and generative exploration of the concept of time um, and memory. Yeah. Could, yeah. You, could you share a little more specifically about Traveler, that, that series? Traveler is a series that started in about, I think, 2016 or 2017. I really wanted to talk about immigration, diaspora. I mean, this is in a time where I'm still, now I'm kind of letting go a lot more of making identity-based work Mm -hmm. and just making work that I love. But that's like in the core of this time where I'm figuring out different ways to kind of research myself and where I come from. I come from a colony three times over. Sri Lanka has been devastated again and again. We don't know who it belongs to. We don't like ourselves. We don't like our country anymore. Mm -hmm. Like just all of the worst symptoms of colonization present. The corruption is so deep that we don't even own our country. Like it's very Mm -hmm. scary and sad. Mm -hmm. So anyway, you know, I come from that and I'm searching for a long time to get back to who I am and who I come from. You know, it's very difficult in that situation. So I was like, okay, let me fabricate I'm going to confabulate on what it means to come from a place that, you know, you don't really belong there or anywhere and that very particular diasporic feeling. And I'm going to use science fiction as the launch pad to talk about the immigrant experience, because like there's things like off-worlding traversing very difficult terrain that's inhospitable. You know, we meet it with lots of grace and resilience mm-hmm. and capability and capacity. All of these incredible creativity, creativity yeah. all of these incredible sort of idealistic qualities. Mm-hmm. And I want to, I want to like smash all this together using kind of mutation and decoration and opulence as the way to talk about this thing. So I start painting travelers who are, you know, essentially they're post humans. They don't have any discernible race or gender whatsoever. We can maybe conclude that race and gender are blurred beyond recognizable visual characteristics that we know today. But 
something that happens in these works, as you've alluded to, is time collapsing. Yeah. So we have a representation of something that, yes, it's futuristic in that we can recognize sort of who these people are. Maybe they're, hum- they're humanoid, so they probably come from Earth. But they're changed enough that it's like, that's not now, for sure. Right. But what they have on their bodies, they're retaining a lot of these sort of heirloom artisanal vestments. Mm-hmm. And they've got pieces of clothing. Like the shape of these might have changed because these same methods are being used to devise articles of clothing that we need to survive in a distant future, but those methods are being preserved, especially the motifs. Mm -hmm. In some cases, when I paint sort of like vests with flowers on them, I recognize that in that timeline, some of these things are just a memory of flowers, how they used to be. Because we can conclude at this rate that we won't have pollinators anymore. The need for flowers, evolutionarily speaking, is gone. Right. right. That's why they're there. So that's kind of, you know, what I, I guess I have to say about Traveler now. You were shortlisted for the 2021 Sobe Art Award and have received numerous recognitions for your work. I've read how your journey to becoming a working artist was fraught with, you know, challenges. Fraught. <laughs> Filled with. Love it. Yes. Love it. I love fraud. <laughs> Challenges that were personal, financial, otherwise. What what kept you going yeah. through the adversity? Right. I don't really have a choice. Uh, I'm a single parent. I raised my daughter on my own. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's no other providers. So I have had to keep going. It's the immigrant story as yes, old as yeah. time itself. Like I yeah. haven't had a choice. I've had to keep going. Um, but as far as like, you know, staying in this career versus others or something yeah. in this field versus yeah. others, this is going to sound very hokey. And you might have heard me say this before, but uh, I come from, I'm Sri Lankan. And in our country, when babies are born, they will do an astrological reading, mm-hmm. which is taken very seriously. It's not the one that we get here with Gemini and Sagittarius right. or something. Right. It's a different thing. So they're serious math. And... Because it's a Buddhist country, it includes a past life. There's a kind of a reading or a feeling that the guru will get when they're kind of holding charts together. So in my past life, I was an artist. I have been born again as an artist, and it's likely I'll be born again as an Mm. artist. So I'm in a loop of, unfortunate loop of that kind of goes on forever, where I am making things for people to look at and think about. I really like my job. This is your destiny. Oh. Yeah. This is what you were meant to do. It's my destiny. It's my destiny. I mean, I used to cook. Like, I cooked all through school. Yeah. You know, I'm a damn good cook. Did you ever consider other career paths? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. my God. Oh, my God. Of course. Yeah. I really love the field of astrobiology mm-hmm. and and growing medicinal and edible plants in space. I always kind of push my daughter into that i'm just like look at this look at this article that just came out on nautilus don't you think it's cool she's a preteener so nothing is cool enough for her (laughs) at all at this time but i keep trying just keep on pushing for that so that's really cool you know astrobotany astrobiology physiology of humans and other animals off world 
And I really am into the physiology of animals that are existing against the odds, Mm -hmm. weirdly. Mm -hmm. So high pressure oceanic environment Mm -hmm. animals, you know, that kind of thing. Deep sea. Deep Deep sea, sea, but also like desert life. Right. Because life is this weird expression of the universe, right? Life itself. Yeah. So it's like looking at the margins where things exist. That's really exciting for me. And I know you're into science and I want to get into nerdy. that a little bit. But let's start with science fiction. I know you're a yeah. huge fan of science fiction. You've said many times it's been an inspiration. Could you tell me any particular books or movies that you fell in love with that have been really important for you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. As I said before, though, I just want to like readdress science fiction as I really love books and movies. And I've always been consuming science fiction products since I was very small. For me, the thing about science fiction is its capacity as a medium to talk about really, really difficult shit or things like that people are having a hard time wrapping their minds around. Someone does it in sci-fi and suddenly it becomes feasible to think about. So like that's the thing about sci-fi for me. But I've been not reading that much recently. I'm going to talk about one book that is not even science fiction. It's science. It's microbiology. So it's the work of Ernst Haeckel. And a friend of mine, amazing artist Alex McLeod, gave me a book of his drawings Mm -hmm. of some of the first sort of like HMS Challenger, like some of the first sort of bell dive deep sea samples that were going under some of the first kind of crude microscopes. And then he looks into these and he can see a certain amount of things. He can't see the rest. The way in which he draws is speculative and he makes speculative biology he's a science fiction artist right right so that's something i've been really kind of looking back at this book and back at this book and back at these drawings just because of how fabulously enticed this person was by life itself by biology and like the mechanisms of living bodies the universe done a really cool thing right pulling us putting us together so it's just kind of like you know the capacity to stare at it and dream about it he was really showing me. That's and then, exciting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just in terms of books as well, quickly, mm. what I really love are, I'm a short story mm-hmm. lady, mm-hmm. so I really love anthologies from the golden age of science fiction, Ted Sturgeon, Isaac Asimov, short works, not right. his huge right. trilogies. Right. There's one story called Night Falls, and it's the first time night ever falls on a planet, and everyone goes insane. There's a revolution. Right. And that he, like, describes these inner workings of, like, an idea that no one's ever thought about and what it does on different levels of society and different sort of leadership bodies in the society on another planet. I think it has, like, five sons or something, so they all set, right? And then on one half of the planet, everything goes completely to chaos. Right. I watch science fiction movies all the time because... You know, I think some of the most beautiful art in the world has been made for science fiction movies. Mm-hmm. Like the sets, the set design and that sort of thing. Even more, I mean, not the just colors, the set the look design, the look, right. the feel, the aesthetics of science fiction, the way it trans it was translated from screenplays into a very specific aesthetic now right. that's recognizable all over the world. Yeah. I just watched The Silent Sea and that was really cool. 
it's a Korean Netflix production, like Gong Yoo's in it, like all-star cast. And I watched it about two years ago and I was like, it's kind of corny. Like, I don't really like this. Or I probably didn't have the capacity to like sit and like wait for it to be good. Right. And then it's this lunar base that like makes this discovery of lunar water from their experiments on the moon. And it's water that expands itself using our biochemistry and it kills us and it acts as a virus. And this all occurs during when the earth is having, you know, the drought that kind of ends us where water is kaputski, like it's over. Right. And it is fantastic. Sounds terrifying. It's very scary, (laughs) but these are the things that like, you know, for a mind like mine, like this is so nice to chew on. Like it's like a doggy bone. But the questions it asks, and this is a great example of the way science fiction steps in and goes, I'll handle this. Yeah. So I love sci-fi for that. It has that capacity. It can, because people kind of like denote it to to this area of, fantasy or right. something yeah. but it deals with reality like in some cases more directly than news Pressing. and media itself I want to stay with science for a second because I've read or heard you comment on your interests in the interconnections or possible interconnections between art and art making and science and oh. I'm, I'm wondering in that space what excites you What what are some ideas that you're thinking about yeah yeah so i'm trying to do that all by myself in my work right now not all by myself i mean you know the great phrase of science is standing on the on the shoulders of giants but you know right now i'm doing a series called phylogeny so science i mean science is really broad and we've had this dearth for a really long time i would call it a What's the opposite of a renaissance? Just like a recession, I guess? Maybe. Yeah. Let's go with it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where I've been called out to, you know, a bunch of different universities kind of throughout Canada for a Mm -hmm. little while just to chat, go up and clown around on stage or what have you. But then, you know, what I get to do is have a look around the the school and see how the faculties are set up and who's talking to one another. I really love intersections mm-hmm. of practice and study. So going in and there's not a lot of cross-pollination happening. And, and it's kind of like, you know, why not? Mm-hmm. And even public space in universities or academic institutions kind of being repurposed for more money by the university so that they could fill, put seats in it and get more tuition and it's coming unfortunately at the cost of public spaces where people need students need to come together and you know the person working in kind of synthetic biology has to meet the person who's working in industrial design right and they just don't now right and faculties are becoming very very over specialized and over niched and kind of going in their little corner that they're making really comfortable only for themselves and not for other people. So it's just kind of like we're having a dearth of cross-pollination and it's a huge problem, Mm -hmm. but I always look out for it. You know, NASA was looking into an artist residency. I think they started one like four years ago, but then COVID and putting people in boxes in space, maybe COVID and that don't really work together. (laughs) Well, I don't know. (laughs) That might've had something to do with it. Might have had something to do with it. I don't really know. Um, So not enough going on. Let me bring up my series, Phylogeny. I've always been a huge fan of, you know, museums, Mm -hmm. especially natural history museums. 
I kind of grew up around that world, but not directly inside it mm -hmm. because of my dad in Colombo being friends with quite a large group of sort of zoological workers. He was a bird breeder himself, and that was very valuable. That was the currency there because he would present a key. He has never followed up on this properly in the way that I really would like to see him do. But he, for me, represents a key in reviving, you know, decimated populations. So anyways, mm -hmm. that's fine. But uh, kind of indirectly growing up in this world. And then, of course, I come to this country. We didn't have money to go to the museum for about two years after mm -hmm. we got here. Mm -hmm. And it was, I could see by my dad's face buying the tickets of going into the ROM that it was way too expensive. It continues to be way too expensive to go to the ROM. But I was astounded by the display of natural history. like. The Yes, it's a very evil. The way it's put together, the way that species are cataloged, the way that Christian ideology comes into the preservation evolution. of animals right. and yeah. presentation of evolution and yeah. these kind of like really weird things that are at play in museum presentation and archiving. Mm -hmm. But I'm very interested in museum presentation of species because... While the methods for putting it together may be misdirected and misinformed, mm -hmm. the love and the dedication that goes into, you know, what the the workers believe is an ed act of education is, for me, that's really amazing. And it deserves love in the special way. What I would like to see changed about museum presentation of animal species, including us, who are totally an animal species, yes. it's the narrative that really, really needs to change. So I was just like, okay, I've kind of been painting about this in Traveler. I want to look into the rest of the ecology and the rest of the living biome that these mammals are living inside mm -hmm. and ev mm -hmm. with everything else. And how does that look? And how does it behave too? So I started kind of painting about it. I did a couple of still lives full of mutated animals and creatures, even like vases and like really weird containers. Cause I love the containment, like domes, like yes, cloches yes, of, yes. you know, museum presentation. It's interesting to me while it's also problematic. And then I was like, you know what? I really want to make animals. I want to start making animals that are mutated yes. and presenting them in natural history museum displays. So I'm I, it's kind of like using that same language. So now natural history museum display becomes a medium for expression right. for me. Right. So I will use this medium of expression and I'm going to take it over here and I'm going to say the things that need to be said about the environment. Right. In natural history museums, we're having an issue, I think, where we are romanticizing a golden age of the natural world mm. that needs to stop. Mm. If a little kid who's never been to Africa or seen a lion or an, any animal of the Serengeti Plains is going into this museum and seeing some idealistic world where nothing is wrong and they don't need to do anything because it looks so cute. It's dangerous. And that's the education that they take yeah. away. That's a problem. Yeah. So I was like, let me start phylogeny. And I'm that I made a horse that's now in Montreal. Yes. And uh, now I'm going to make an eel that's like kind of like sashaying through a reef. That's transparent. Yeah. And you can see through the eel's entire body. And I'm going to put garbage inside the organs and mm. really talk about, quote unquote, the natural world. 
I just feel like our irresponsibility is yeah. being erased from the presentation of the natural world in education institutions. So it's a more ethical, truthful approach to presenting the natural world. That's correct. That I'm fair? trying for that, yeah. but also mutation comes up in this very particular way in phylogeny where I address mutation not as an abhorrent mm-hmm. physiological phenomena or issue yeah. like to be dealt with, but yeah. it's a, rather as a resilience or a revolution of the body to right. stay alive. Right. So mutation, which we'll see more and more in our lives, it appears beautiful to me, not only because of the way it looks, because I'm a weird, gross artist who really <laughs> loves these things, but also the idea of it, the right. idea of a biological Survival. form surviving Survival. and what it has to do. Yeah. Sometimes it has to kill itself to pollinate properly in the next cycle. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. It knows what its job is. You know, so it's very kind of elegant to me in like a gross way. (laughs) Peculiar kind of way. I want to talk about your material. So you work with a broad range of media, um, polymers, textiles, clay. I'm sure I'll miss something in this list. Wood, um, all kinds of beads in your more recent work. Mm. uh, Wood beads. I think you've got pearls in in some of these wonderful pieces. Synthetic taxidermy, which you just alluded to. Mm -hmm. How do you gather these materials? Are these... Would you call these found materials or are you sourcing them in a very deliberate way? How do you, how do you come into... I'm such a nerd, Neil. I'm just looking at stuff. I'd like I'm sourcing okay. or making what doesn't exist yet. Right. So like I did these light works yeah. like three years ago. Yeah. I loved making those. I got to work with my friend Kate McNeil and she's an amazing lighting designer. Mm-hmm. And one of them, I just couldn't find the bulb. I was like, I want a bulb like a seed. And she's like, dude, what? Bulb like a seed shape. She's like, you could make it. And I made it out of, we like cut the pieces to form the carapace of the seed. And I sewed cotton all around it. And I wrapped LED strip around like a heavy pipe. And it was a seed bulb. And in the same way, kind of like for making this synthetic taxidermy, mm-hmm. which I hope is the future of natural history mm-hmm. museum mm-hmm. display because mm-hmm. stop killing animals because mm-hmm. we can't kill them anymore. That is actually completely new material. So no animal is ever harmed in these creations. I start with, for the mammals, such as the horse, uh, taxidermy form, which you can order. And it's just been kind of foam injected into a very standard shape. And you can actually like take that and modify it and do everything that you want, anything you want. In the case of the horse, there are extra eyes on both sides of the face and kind of, you know, the feet are changed, legs are changed a little bit. And then we go ahead and we will shave hair off of that. I mean, that one is covered in Ikea cowhide rug hair. And we learned the technique from movie special effects and animatronics prop building. So I just keep on watching those courses and trying to like keep my skills sharp in synthesizing animals. I like to call it speculative taxidermy where I'm thinking about what's going to happen and kind of building it based on predetermined or pre-existing biological factors that are kind of fixed. But I make departures enough that people know what's going on here. Um, and you yeah. work with uh, teams. I've seen on, on there's Instagram. Text, like, yeah. a lot there's of, text, yeah. There's text as needed. I yeah. really wish that I could permanently hire 
technicians and a team and give them I want to give them like salary benefits yeah. everything because they deserve but you know I'm not in that income bracket yet and yeah. I hope to get there one day or at least you know get them yeah. like one massage a month or something you know for the first time in a long time am I actually having these feelings because I have a good team now yeah and I just want to care for them you that's know? awesome I have, yeah, I have texts that come in and go as they can or as they want to. Yeah. I'll call them up and be like, hey, what are you saying? It's going to get crazy again. <laughs> Some of them are like, no. Some of them are like, yay. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, we just go on weird journeys. There's a lot of, yeah, now more than ever materials research. That's awesome. It's fun. You were born in Sri Lanka in 1985 and came to Canada at a young age. Uh, and I read that in 2016, I can't remember the exhibition, mm. uh, you went back to uh, Sri Lanka to show work. And I wondered, it was that, I couldn't determine if that was your first time ever going back to show work, but I wondered about that experience, if you could talk about what that was like um, as an artist returning and, and having a show there in Colombo. Nothing beats that being right. called back home to do something. So right. commercially speaking, yeah, good experience. Yeah. Um, showed with a gallery in Colombo. You know, it was fine. There's not a lot of galleries in Colombo, Sri Lanka, who are doing fairs and moving around the place. So, I mean, that's, let me see what happens with yeah. that. But, yeah. you know, as far as as working in, like, art festivals and yeah. biennales, like, Sri Lanka's popping. Like, it's I really love what's being made back home. Right. I think it's worthy of a global audience at like a high degree of like, uh, like a certain caliber of like rigor, right. you know, right. just ideologically, like execution wise, like artisanally and like in terms of the makership of it, it's really, it's amazing. And the more I go back home, the more I see, the more I discover I'm going back home in a very strange way, as you may know, where you go back home and you're a Canadian, but yes. you're a Sri Lankan, but you don't, when you speak, you have an accent and they're like, who are you? Like, what is this? And it's kind of, you know, magical. I, there's complaints that I hear about that experience mm -hmm. and I don't really take it that way. I'm like, I have an eye that a lot of people don't have. You know, I can see... I'm that vessel with two mouths. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? Yes. Like what things can come in from both ends yes. and go out from both ends too. Yeah. And it's a, it's a very interesting situation to go back home and make work about this. But like, what's the reception to the work? If I can ask, like gen good. generally speaking, people yeah. are, I mean, I think that in any environment where there is lack, there will be issues and you know, problems with a certain type of work or that artist or this artist or yeah. somebody, you know, I can see that there is the symptom of lack while there is also a intense kind of like love and devotion of the artists of Sri Lanka, cultural workers coming in from India and all over the world, Pakistan mm -hmm. to like, do these beautiful festivals. So festivals. So Columboscope is nearing its, I don't know which edition this is now. It's directed by Natasha Ginwala mm -hmm. and, you know, this incredible team. And they're just like, Columboscope blows me away. That's what I'm saying. I'm just kind of like, 
I can see the potential because they sh- they have international artists like they fly us in everything, mm-hmm. and but like they really highlight you know especially work of artists from the north from Jeffna which has been politically and like socially such a segregated and persecuted population mm-hmm. and. You know, Sri Lanka, of course, Sinhalese Sri Lanka shies away from like showing this Tamil, Tamil. political work yeah. that's beautiful and poetic and like yeah. incredible work. But, you know, they're just like, fuck it, let's do it. And for me, it's like, that's rock and roll. Like, some, that's really cool. Some courage there. There's a yeah, good amount yeah, of courage, but yeah. like there's a lot of devotion and dedication to like building building this into, I think, what can be one of the top biennales in Southeast Asia, if not the world, like nice. it's special, and I see a great future for Columboscope. So I, w- I got day. to be in Columboscope, and man, they hooked me up with like this clay master named Sarat Chandrajeeva. I didn't even know about him, and he's he's been doing all the like political figure monuments all around Sri Lanka. He's taught clay in school for like his whole life. He's got like a PhD. I've never heard of this guy, which is <laughs> pathetic. And I go in and he was incredible. And we made a whole project together on the west coast of Sri Lanka. And then I made a lantern with a kite maker. Nothing but the best things to say about Colombo Scope and my experience doing that. That was amazing. I hope to check it out one day. You've talked about the importance of your self-representation and having that autonomy as an artist, as you've shaped your career uh, on your own terms, I would say. Was that by design? Did you always set out to say, I'm going to make sure I retain a certain amount of control and vision around my career? Or yeah. was that just, did the circumstances cause you to have to take that approach? Yeah, both. Both. Both of those things. When I came out of school, there nobody wanted to show me. I had one solo exhibition straight out of school. It didn't go well for me because the idea of representation doesn't sit right with me. I'm very sensitive to power imbalances. How come you... You have 40 artists in your roster, but I only... You're my only source of income. That's not... I can't even afford to do that. That's pretty insightful as a young artist to have that position. I mean... That's... Thank you for saying that's yeah. very kind. Yeah. But also I was showing my told you, I was showing my work in like second year. Right. I had the I, the advice of this amazing prof. He wasn't that popular because he was kind of like a character. His name is Chincock Tan. And he like started his second class. It was it really spoke to me. And when he's just like, Hey, if you're rich, wait until school is over. That's so nice for you. Take your time. Investigate your craft. If you need to make money after school, start showing now. Now. Put it in anywhere. Put it in cafes. Put it in restaurants. Learn how to hang a show. Curate your shows. Bring your friends. Put it up there. Budget for the show. Get people's money together. Mm -hmm. You know, how do you light it? How do you promote it? And I was like, I really like this message. Yeah. So I started making a fool of myself in the beginning. <laughs> I didn't really know what to do, but I just kind of did trying. it my way yeah. that I wanted to do yeah. it. And I started doing shows. I was doing shows with just myself. And like, you know, by that time I was living downtown, you know, I kind of moved downtown after one year of OCAD. So making friends and being like, hey, you know, what are you saying the month of October? 
what do you, what's on your walls? They're like, oh, I don't know. What are just whatever? Why? What do you have in mind? I was like, yeah, yeah. So I, I have my show. work. Yeah, I'm going to put out now, I'll produce kind of like 10 works. And I'm going to put it here, here, and there. It'll look really nice. I'm going to hang it well. And I bought a level and I had like a little collection of power tools. And I would go in and I learned how to install exhibitions on my own. There came a time later where I had to install an entire track lighting system on my own, you know, yeah. to light my show properly. So, you know, on the advice of Chincock 10, I learned how to produce exhibitions. Right. Is that advice you would give to an upcoming or artist starting out? Or is that a Rajni Pereira story? And it, it may not work for everyone. It's, but I'm just, it's not even my advice, Neil. It's yeah. the advice of Chincock 10. Yes. Yes. It's his advice because he was just like, if you're that, if you can't wait, then you got to start doing that now. So yeah. it's like, it's a bit of like, so it's both of those things. Yeah. First of all, I have a distaste for the idea of representation, unless the gallery is like, we're going to, we're going to devote as much time as you do into making the work, into building your career, yeah. yet to come upon a gallery yeah. like that. Yeah. Okay. Right. We're still left giving all the handing 50% over while absorbing all the costs of living. Right, it's right. just not out it's outdated. It's yeah. completely outdated. It also is exploitative that it's still being practiced. It's just yeah. I have a distaste for that yeah. and the other thing is that I learned business. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So yeah. some people and galleries will say I maybe I'm a little bit difficult to work with. It's only cuz I know my shit. Right. That's the only reason. Yeah. And I'm not a baby. Like I I've been I've been doing it. Yeah. Sorry. No, no, no. <laughs> I love it. I love it. What are you working on now? And is there anything you'd like to highlight that's coming up? I know we were talking before and you said to me you're scheduled out a couple of years, but is there anything you'd yeah. like to signal for our listeners? So Futures that started at the McMichael will be, has yeah. been touring across Canada kind of here and there. So it shows at the Musée Joliet this coming summer. For like a very long time. It's like a four-month show. And I will actually be installing phylogeny in within that show, which in within the future show at the Musée Joliet in Quebec. I'm doing Expo Chicago, uh, which is a really cool art fair with the Patel Brown Gallery, the Toronto Patel Brown. Mm -hmm. And that's next spring. I'm gonna be doing Plural in Montreal with my Montreal gallery, Gallery Hugues Charbonneau. Um, and yeah, kind of like looking into some residencies and exhibitions in New York City as well at this time. So just investigative work. I like to do that well ahead of time and I like to plan well. Yeah. Planning helps my career and my decisions and my life move more smoothly. Right. Um, I don't like the erratic sort of romanticized artist yeah. life thing. Yeah. It doesn't fit my me, my circumstances. Yeah. So I go the other way where there are, you know, there's not, it's not like there's spreadsheets or anything. Yeah. There's a calendar. There's, there's a calendar <laughs> and there's kind of a budget. And yeah. I'm like using this quote unquote restful time. Yes. Yeah. To organize my next year or few years. It really helps me. So, and it helps me f be restful during busy times yeah. to plan those times, yeah. right? Wonderful. On the podcast, we like to ask our guests to pose a question, which we put to another artist. And our previous guest asked, what is your connection? I think this is made for you. What is your connection and responsibility to the environment? How did they know? Right. We, and they didn't. They didn't know. Who did you the, tell them? No, they didn't, they didn't know. know. So okay. it's just it's just amazing that 
This yeah. is the question. What is your connection and responsibility to the environment? How does the environment come into play in your practice? Yeah, I mean, amazing. <laughs> who asked that? Can I ask who that last artist was? We, we tend not to reveal. Oh, my God. Uh, okay. But it was Raven Davis. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, for me, responding to concerns or issues of the environment is the same as addressing issues of identity, addressing issues of, you know, of colonization, mm-hmm. because it's the same arm that decimates the human experience in certain parts of the world versus others that destroys the rest of the world that we live in. So it's like, for me, responding to the environment is like a natural mechanism inside my practice. And I wouldn't even be able to run away from it if I had like a jetpack or something. Like <laughs> I would have to address it. And it's also one of the, one of the most urgent topics yeah. that need addressing in fine art institutions not seeing it enough, like environment degradation and decimation, like it really needs to come into the public eye from a cultural standpoint. It's like, oh, people are making culture, like artists making identity-based work is fine and good. Like I understand that, but I just don't understand why I'm not seeing as much environmentally based sort of environment conscious artwork that's being put out there is a little bit here and there but i don't yeah. know why it's a little bit here and there that's the the question that i ask yeah. so yeah i don't i feel like i just just to long story short it's like i don't really feel like i have a choice because i live in the year 2023 the year yeah. of our lord 2023 <laughs> for god's sake so like i really need to talk about that and yeah. there's no way around it really i mean i have an 11 year old kid like i don't really know if she'll be able to breathe comfortably i don't think so and and lastly we often ask each artist to pose a question then to the the future artist do do you have a question it can be about anything it doesn't have to be about art but what's a question that we could ask a future guest i guess a really nice question for for being a cultural producer kind of in in this time is is how do you rest Mm-hmm. How do you rest? What are the things you do to become restful in your mind and with your body? Because I also want to know. I'm having trouble feeling really restful these days. Yes. So I just want to know from them. And then I can't wait to hear their answer <laughs> on how they rest. That's a wonderful question. Rajni, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Intention, presented by the Power Plant Contemporary Art Gallery, is made possible with the support of Canada Council for the Arts. We thank the diverse mix of Canadian contemporary artists for sharing more about their lives and work. This episode was hosted and created by Neil Price in collaboration with the Power Plant Contemporary Art Gallery team, Beverly Cheng, Daria Sposobna, and Zachary Skola Allison. This show was produced by the team at Edit Audio. This episode was edited, mixed, and mastered by Ali Sirwa. Our executive producer is Steph Colburn, and our production manager is Kathleen Speckert. Show music is by No Cliché and Mopao Mumu. <laughs>